Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's Bibles along the, the aisles. Grab one. I encourage you, dive in with me. We're going to be uh, looking at Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 31. And um, just to bring some of you kind of up to date as to where we are, we're in about week uh, 28, 29, I don't know, somewhere we're about ready to celebrate our 30th week anniversary of the book of Mark. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Um, and um, two weeks ago, we Jesus had encountered uh, the religious institution of his day. He had a real face-to-face encounter with the Pharisees, the religious, uh, the religious organization that basically ruled and said, this is who, what it looks like to be in God's kingdom, to be a true Hebrew, to be a true Israelite, to be a true God-fearing person. This is what you must do. And what they did is they, they started out by looking at, at the law, and they built kind of a, a fence around the law called tradition. And tradition protected the law, and it also gave the, the people ways to practice the law, to, to work out their faith. But after a while, this tradition became so important, it became the centerpiece that the law took the back seat to everything else. And Jesus said, hold on, you have it all wrong. This is what is important. The inside man. It's not the external stuff that you do. It's not about just showing up to church. It's not about giving your tithes. It's not about doing these things. The important thing here that you've got to remember is what is, going, what is God transforming and changing on the inside because that will determine how you live, how you act, how you live in the kingdom of God. And that did not go so well. It made the, the institution a little angry. It made the fundamentalists a little ticked off, to say the least. So what, what he moved on to do is, he said, okay, I am going to move and take my ministry to Tyre and Sidon. And basically, Tyre and Sidon was this, this region in, in, um, in Israel, which would be considered um, a pagan area. It, it was a place where a good God-fearing Jew would avoid, because you would need to be bathing and cleaning yourself regularly, regularly because you would be in contact with unclean people, with their unclean food, their unclean this, their unclean that. And in that time, a woman came and fell at Jesus' feet and said, Jesus, my daughter is demon-possessed. Would you heal her? Would you, would you transform her? And Jesus said, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check your faith. And that test came true. She said, listen, Jesus, even the dogs, people like me, outsiders, get crumbs. We get get goodies from the kingdom. And Jesus goes, you're right. Your daughter is healed. Now go. Today, we're going to be looking at, um, I just love this, this, this section because and I, as a pastor, have got to be careful because it's easy for me to give you um, about four good points. And if I was really Dutch and Reformed, it'd be a three-point sermon, but today it's going to be four. So those of you who take notes, you know, you're going, oh, good, four points, I'll be looking for them. But I, I don't want you to get so caught up in the, 
the practical. What does it say about me? I want you to see Jesus in all of this. I want you to discover something that you have never known and understood about Jesus Christ. Because this is what this whole book is about. It's not about practical stuff. It's not about stuff about how to live right, have a good moralistic kind of lifestyle. This is a book about Jesus. This is about Jesus. So read along with me. Uh, It's on page, what was it, 843, if you got one of those Bibles. Um, Starting at verse 31. And then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, which is really ten cities. Again, ten of those kind of unclean pagan cities. And by the way, just so you know, one of the cities of the Decapolis is Pella. Not Pella, Iowa, but Pella. Just a little Dutch thing for you. I know you're not Dutch, but you should be. Uh, Verse uh, 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looked up to heaven and sighed and said to him, Ephpatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them, the whole crowd, to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Since the healing of the, the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus had spent probably about eight months, about one-third of his, his three years, in a pagan, unclean area. And Jesus, was. this was a a picture, a practice that he wanted to say to the church, to the religious folks, and say, listen, getting out of your bubble is important. I grew up in a culture where stepping out of the bubble was inappropriate. I grew up in a culture where um, dating a public school girl was close to being like be, being debarred as a lawyer. You lose all your rights, all your privileges, and it's like, seriously? You're dating a public school girl? Most of them can't read, let alone go to church. You know, well, that was kind of mentality, you know, Sue, how it is. But, you know, it was just kind of like, seriously, you don't go to those, those folks. You don't date them. And so I understand this. It's like Jesus is saying, listen, This bubble that you have created is an unhealthy bubble. And Jesus is, in his own way, breaking our fragile bubble and saying, move. The kingdom of God is not about you. The kingdom of God is about where I want you to move. The kingdom of God is about my movement and pushing you out. 
and getting out of your safety zone and going into those unsafe places, those unclean places, those places where your values and your way of life are threatened. And Jesus is saying, go. Get out. And really, it is a beautiful, if we look at this scripture and seeing how Jesus is working and moving in just this one man's life in a pagan culture, we see a beautiful model of ministry. We see the life of Christ in a beautiful way that most of us do not get. And that's a blanket statement. But most of us really do not get what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God and the responsibility of the church who is his body represented here on earth. Mark tells us that uh, Jesus looked up into the sky, looked up into the heaven. And we understand this is really a, a real visible indication of Jesus really looking up into heaven and recognizing his father's presence. This is Jesus' prayer life, an indication of Jesus' full dependence on the Father. And I think that's something that we don't really understand. Jesus, fully God, fully man, had full dependence on the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, had full dependence on His Father. And we, as the church so much less than God, have full dependence on our gifts, our talents, our skills. And Jesus, in his prayer life, says, you know, we we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, of Jesus praying, almost bleeding in his sweat, just saying, Father, this is, Father, if there is another way, Father, and this is Jesus, fully dependent, just praying these these gut-wrenching prayers. And Jesus lifts up his eyes as he sees this man, this man who, who can't hear anything, whose tongue, when he speaks, it's just these mumble, mumbling kind of things where you're going, oh, man. And as a Jewish person, the importance of your ears is important. Because that is where you hear the word of God. Where you hear these words. Even in Deuteronomy, it talks about how you're supposed to talk about these words. Talk about the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might. And these words shall be on your heart. You shall talk about them. In your house, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you stand up, these words should be on your heart. They should dwell and take up residence. And this man had no access for the words to even dwell deeply within him. And then on top of that, if he would ever be a father or mother, he would have no way to even communicate them. So there's no way for them to get in and go out. So this is a man that is just totally totally in despair. There was no reaching even this man. He could see stuff going on. So Jesus looked at him, looked up to heaven, and that's how he starts. 
Jesus is in constant communion with the Father. And Jesus was looking up to heaven in the midst of busy, hands-on ministry. And I think that's a, a powerful message for us. In the middle of all of our ministry, whether it's here as a church and doing the setting up, the tearing down, or whether it's going to Roseland and doing stuff like that, in our busy, hands-on ministry, in our workplaces, do we have that kind of prayer? That kind of a prayer life where we can be, I, I see it, we can be so given to the ministry of our children or even in the children's ministry, but yet we don't take the time to pray for them, to really pray for them, and thus really deny them the greatest service that we could do of praying for our children. We get so intent on, on glorifying God by the work that we do on a day-to-day business, no matter what it is, whether you're in services, in some kind of service orientation, or if you're in in the medical field, or if you're a carpenter, or whatever you are, we get so busy and caught up glorifying God with our hands that we do not glorify Him in our hearts. We get so busy doing good things for our neighbors, our community, and our church that the upward life, the upward looking, is little more than just a nervous nod saying, God, is, is this your will? Is this, is this what you want me to be doing? I hope so. My will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus, I, I, Jesus is saying something to us, even with just that simple look up into heaven. And I would say that a sin that is very near the top of the list is probably not sensuality and materialism. So I think those are probably pretty darn close in our culture. I would say towards the very top of the list for the church of Jesus Christ is prayerlessness. For us, it's prayerlessness. That's why for me, these prayers of the people are critical. That we as the body pray. That we take time out of my sermon where I've got to go, okay, what's really important here? Time to cut back some pages. And we spend time in prayer. No matter how busy we are, we have got to be constantly exposing our souls to God, just adoring Him for who He is and what He is doing. And we should be constantly just praying for our, our inner life Lord, that God, would you just work in my soul so that I am just burdened for the things of you. That we should be praying in detail, in detail for members of our family. When was the last time you really sat down and said, Dear God, I am praying for my wife, Laura. That's not your wife. My wife, Laura. And just saying, God, would you protect her today? God, would you... Would you be with her as she is with women that are lost, as she's going to a baby shower? God, would you be with and Gracie? God, may she understand that her beauty is found deep within and not from the things of this world, the stuff that she does, the knowledge in her. When when is the last time that we've really prayed in detail for our family? 
by name deeply prayed for our families? When's the last time that we've really prayed by name for our neighbors? Do you know your neighbors? Seriously. Do you know them by name? Do you know the stuff that's going on in their life? And can you pray for your neighbors by name and by issue? Do you know the people in the dorm room next to you, Trinity? Uh, people, I mean, like really know them. Not just like, eh, they're the, the loud group that keeps me up and they keep stomping upstairs. You know, you know, can you pray for them by name because you have a heart for them? You know, on top of that, do we have a list of missionaries that you support and pray for? Do you pray for the daily needs of the church? Do you know the needs of the church? Really, do you know? Do you have any clue? And going beyond generalizing, Lord, may the, the mission of Missio Day Church just go forward and bless Paul as he leads it. Do you, can you pray specifically for the church? Prayerlessness is a fundamental sin for busy Christians. And Jesus, in his busy life of ministering, is constantly praying. Constantly praying. Alexander McLaren says this. He says, If we would give sight to the blind, we must ourselves be gazing into heaven. If, if we really want to be the hands of Jesus Christ, if we want to be uh, ministering to people, we ourselves, we have got to be gazing into heaven and say, God, God, is this your will? God, equip me. God, equip us. Lord, would your will be done here? God, with prayers and petitions, prayers and petitions, just constantly saying, Lord, would you, could you now do this? Isn't it strange how we always manage to really have time for the things that we want to do? but we struggle with this very area. On top of that, we see in verse 34 that as uh, Jesus was uh, exposed to this man, he, he did something. And I think that it's really easy for us to get the wrong picture. Verse 34, And looking up into heaven, he sighed. He sighed. There's a story about a man named uh, Hugh Rudd, who was a CBS newsman. And uh, a few years ago, after he did a late-night um, news um, piece, he was heading home. He was dropped off uh, by a taxi right in front of his East Side New York uh, apartment building. The taxi pulled away, and a group of young men came up and said, Give me all the money that you have. He willingly, knowing the kind of men they probably were, he willingly immediately gave them everything that he had. One of them took a, the butt of a pistol and knocked him out cold. For hours, he lay in the gutter as a parade of people would walk by. People coming home from a night out. People uh, going to work for the early shift. People just walking by, and he's laying there in the gutter saying, help me. 
help me. Finally, 7 o'clock in the morning, his wife is concerned that he hasn't shown up. The police come and discover him 30 feet from the door, barely conscious. And that's a picture of the compassion that Christ is saying, they're right here. There's a hurt man. And he sighs. He sighs these deep, compassionate sighs. Compassion and real caring was not in vogue in the Bible times. And it's really, honestly, it's probably, even though we got kind of this social justice thing going on in, for our generation, do we have real deep compassion and caring for the people in our world? We see it also with Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. It says in John eleven thirty three, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The word for deeply moved in his spirit is the same word for the sigh. And in the Greek, it, it's described as like this, the, the snorting of a horse. And it describes just this Jesus' involuntary gasp at what he sees. One translator gave it this way. It said, he says, uh, he gave way to such distress of his spirit as it made his whole body tremble. And it even goes on to say that he began to weep for these people. He began to weep. You want to talk about compassion. That's the compassion that Christ had. And perhaps he got this man close to him. And he knew exactly what he was going to do for him in the next couple seconds. And he looked at him knowing that he could not hear the words of life. He could not speak. He couldn't hear people. And perhaps the sigh was Jesus looking at the man's sin looking at fallen creation and what the devil has done. And I think Jesus is saying here this morning that those of us who want to minister Christ's healing must share His compassion for the hurting. If we want to be His hands and His feet, we first have got to have His compassion. We can get caught up in all kinds of good things, but it's just a bunch of junk. We don't have the heart of Christ. The compassion, the deep, moving compassion that brings true, complete, whole healing. George Eliot says, says this, If we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heart beat. That's kind of odd sounds. And we would die at the roar which lies on the other side of silence. Do we have any clue at what is going on in the silence of this man's head? 
and the deep pain that is going on for, for years. Maybe he was 30, 40, 50 years old. Who knows how old he was? And living in that caged silence for so long. And Christ looks at that and sighs. A sigh of compassion. We need to be like Jeremiah and Jesus. When Jeremiah, he said this, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. When the church sighs in genuine compassion, power comes to the hurt. Blessed are those who mourn. Approved are those who mourn over the sins and the sins of their sins and the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are merciful, those who have a compassionate, merciful spirit. Are we compassion? Are you are you compassionate people? Are you a real compassionate person who has the heart of Christ? When was the last time that you wept over a deformed person? When was the last time that you ever had great sorrow? over a life that was just distorted by sin? When was the last time that you sighed about divorce, poverty, abortion, war, injustice? Are we tender and caring? If we're deficient, we need to pray. God, change my heart. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus got it. And it's significant that Jesus looked to heaven and sighed. And when we look to heaven, we see through the Father's eyes. And we have the compassion of Jesus. But then Jesus laid hand on this man. It's It's kind of this junior high kind of thing, having been in Youth ministry, uh, part of me kind of wanted to giggle because Jesus kind of gave this guy a wet willy. If you don't know what it is, I could show you real quick like. The licking of the fingers and stuck them in his ears. And then, then he spit on his hand. Yuck! And I'm sure he had to kind of grab this guy's jaw, pop it open and stick it on there. Yuck, you know, but Jesus had this touch. He's going, listen, you don't get this, but I want to give you something that you can understand and feel right now. I'm going to touch you. And there's even these pictures of Jesus in the New Testament. We've already looked at it in some of Mark where where Jesus lays his hands on these grotesquely deformed people who who are covered fully. Their bodies are just riddled with leprosy and he touches them. His hand goes on humanity, and He touches them. He touches them deeply. It could have been 20 or 30 years since this man or the leper has been touched, and they received the touch of Jesus, the man who can heal. The church is the hands of Jesus Christ. Who are not supposed to be wearing white gloves. take off the gloves and give the touch the healing touch of Christ more than likely Jesus could have just spoken a word 
and just simply willed it and said, be healed. But he chose to lay a hand on this poor man as he pulled him aside. And I'm sure that the disciples were a little shocked. It's like, what are you doing, Jesus? But the beautiful thing for me is I look at Jesus reaching out and touching. As Jesus touches humanity, there's some theological things that we've got to, we've got to get to the root of. The touch of His pure hand on the rotting hand, the rotting body, the broken body of a leper and of this, this deaf and mute man is a parable of the Incarnation. Jesus, in the Incarnation, took on flesh, became sin for us, and thus gave us His purity. Look, look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake He made Him, God made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, by touching this man, made him whole. Made him, his skin just fresh again. As Jesus, as the church, as Jesus' extension, as we lay hands on people and speak these words and touch their lives, we bring life through the ministry that God calls us to be a part of. As we minister in Roseland, we are the extension of Jesus Christ, touching, healing, giving handouts, loving people with compassion. True compassion doesn't just feel. It doesn't just stay in here. It reaches out. And it touches. If we are to minister, there must be touch. There must be touch. There's very little effect from Christian practice or, or evangelism that shies away from sin and pain. If we're scared to get in, into people's lives who are just riddled with sin, if we're scared to get into people's lives who are just deeply in, in pain, it really makes no impact. In fact, it makes, makes us those hypocrites that Jesus speaks very clearly about. I'll be honest, it it bothers me as a pastor. And it even happens in our our little circle here, and I'm sure it happens in the church, where we hear people say, I'm just too busy to do it. Oh my gosh. What do you mean you're too busy? You're too busy to pray and have compassion and touch people's life? Shame on us. Shame on the church. If you're too busy in your own context to be the ministering hands of Jesus Christ, shame on us and all the more reason for us to pray. I'm not calling for you to have a busier life with more activities and more stuff. I'm just... Asking, do we have the heart of Christ? Or are we so focused in on our family and my little life? And I just want to keep it nice and pretty and American with picket fences. And Jesus says, no. 
That is not what this is about. You are called to go out. But here's, here's some questions that we really need to wrestle with. Because some of us, um, the easy thing for us to do is just to throw money at problems. Or just pray that um, the pastor of the church might do it for you. Not going to do it for you. But here's some questions that we've got we've to wrestle with. Have we been reaching out to others, touching them in their misery? That's why I love this the story. Karen, Karen, well, talk about a great, great picture of reaching out to someone in their misery. Of Kendra and her team, and I think Liz and John are, are all getting involved. And Ed, you've been out there once, right? Where you go out to Roseland and we, we get into people's sometimes misery and touching their lives in those places. Are we giving time to listen, really listen to other people's needs? Or is our life such a blur where it's going like this all the time? And we're just going, I don't have, I don't, I don't, I don't have time for that. I'm sorry, I'm just really busy right now. If I stop, I'm going to fall asleep on the couch. But do we have the time to listen to people and their needs? Have we been willing to be uncomfortable to help others. Are we ever do we ever run the danger of getting dirty in the process? The church isn't about being pretty about being the hands and the feet and the eyes and the full body of, of getting into people's lives and offering them the only hope, the only thing that will bring true life. So bringing it all together, is Jesus spoke a word. And in reality, God's word is enough. Jesus speaking a word is enough. And it can do it all on itself. But God has chosen. God has chosen to minister through people who pray. Who are deeply compassionate and are willing to get their hands dirty. That's the church. If you're looking for church, look for people who are praying. It might not be us yet, I don't know. But people who are praying and who are compassionate and who are going out, getting their hands dirty, and on top of that, speaking the Word. Speaking the Word. Because I, I, I love how this whole thing ends in Mark. Verse 37. Right, let's 36 and 37. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. And everybody goes, well, why, why not? That would be like great marketing. Well, the reason is, is because these people were like looking for a king. And Jesus is going, I'm not your king like you think. I hope you get something deeper. I am the Messiah, the 
promised one. So he told them to say nothing. But the more that he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Because a life has been changed right here. And then they were astonished beyond measure. They were astonished. They were dumbfounded. I, behold, he does all things well. And this goes back to Genesis 1, 31. At the end of creation, it is good. It's just echoing this. And God is good. Oh, God is good. He even makes the deaf here. He makes the mute speak. He heals the leper. He does all things well. Now, can you imagine if that was the church? Where, where as people come in, you know, maybe they're all in a tizzy about this election stuff, and then all of a sudden they encounter the church and they go, oh, this is the extension of Jesus Christ. They do all things well. Because they have a heart that is deeply connected with, with their Savior. And they are the hands and the feet. They are the people that, that go to Planned Parenthood and say, what can I do to help you get the women in healthy places? Where we are involved in politics, not as these belligerent idiots you know, that go out and pick it, but we're these people who are saying, what can we do what programs can we do? What ministries can we do? How can we be involved instead of just these, these right wing or left wing or moderate whatever who don't really get it? But we're the, we are the body of Christ. And behold, they do all things well. Because they're the body of Christ. I love this. This is a picture for us. And Christ is saying, will you be a part of this? Will you be a part of this? Great glory went up to God again and again in Decapolis. And it was a day to be remembered. If we ever want to reach our culture, our workplaces, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It requires just an upward look to our Father. It requires us to have a compassionate heart that resonates and beats with the Father's heart. It requires us to love people who are hurting. Not just with checkbooks. Not with just words from our lips. But with a touch. And on top of that, here's the thing. It's all empty without a bold proclamation of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ crucified for our sake. Him clothing us with His righteousness so that we can have right standing before the Father. Healing comes to our homes, our neighborhoods, and our churches and our world when this happens. Let's pray. God, I thank You that Your Word is alive. 
God, I thank you that um, not only is it a life that it demands transformation, a deep transformation, not just this uh, stuff that just flies off our lips, but Lord, that that comes from the inside out, that it deals with our our selfishness, it deals with our uh, our self righteousness. Lord, that it calls for a change in our understanding of sin. And Lord, that it gives us hope that whoever may be in Christ is a new creation. For the old is gone and the new has come. So God, I pray for our church. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, whether they're guests from far or near or part of this body. God, I pray, Lord, that you do something here this morning. That you break our hearts. God, we are going to be celebrating a special meal that we do every week. We're going to be celebrating a meal that is a beautiful picture of your body broken for us so that we can be your redeemed. Of a cup that symbolizes your blood because it was your blood that purchased us, that redeemed your your church. God, it's also just this beautiful picture of, of unity. Because there took it took many grains of wheat to make one bread. And so, Lord, we come together as many different people in one body to celebrate this. God, I pray that in this moment, in these times, Lord, that you would minister deeply to our hearts. But God, right now, I just pray, Lord, that we take some time to confess our sins before you. Lord, that our heart would really be rendered in two. Because you are a holy God who demands nothing less than perfection. And just, Lord, just even looking at the Ten Commandments, first one, that there should be no other God before you. God, we have, we have tons of gods before you. Some of it is family. Some of it is tradition. Some of it is our pocketbook. Some of it is, the list goes on. So, God, we confess those things before you. Because we are called to confess. God, I thank you that as far as the east is from the west, so far have you separated our sins from us. Lord, that you give us these images that our our sins will be removed. That we shall be white as snow because of the blood that your son has shed for us. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for, again, your word. 
God, would you minister to us next in communion? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a this is a meal that the body of Christ celebrates. Brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a meal that is reserved for those of us who confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. If, if you have not made that confession yet, I just invite you to sit back, watch. Uh, there will be no judgment whatsoever. Uh, but this is a meal that's reserved for the body of Christ, His church. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took His bread and He said, This is My body, broken for you. Those who are serving, come on up. Just a picture of His body that is broken. And here's here's the fun thing. Revelation talks about a feast that we get a share in. That we can share in because of the price, the blood that was shed. We get a share in a feast together. The final feast. A party. Because the price that Jesus paid for our sins. We celebrate this by means of intinction, which basically means you take a piece of bread, the body of Christ broken for you. Go to the cup, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Dip it in, and then you consume Take it when you're ready. I just really want to encourage you. Spend some time in prayer. Confess. And when you're ready, you may come for all things are ready.